And welcome back to Fully Equipped. Jonathan Wall here, joined by the usual cast of characters, Mr. Robot Gene Parenti, RB, Chris McCormick, whole crew. Boys, I am in remodel hell, but it is great to see you. How are we doing? Hey, no complaints here in the desert. We're in the process of moving our HQ facility about a half a mile down the road. So we have moving companies and we have contractors and all of the employees are running around. So I tried to find the quietest spot in the building, which just happened to be the fitting studio at the moment. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm good. I mean, I had, a, I had a good busy weekend. I think uh, if anyone follows me on social, we had a, we had a bouncy castle at my house all weekend for my daughter's yes. fifth birthday. It nice. was uh, it was just for her. So like we didn't uh, just had like a family party. So like, you know, uh, I, I did have to, you know, just for safety, test it out a couple of times. Um, it's fun. You have to do it. You got it. You, you got to do it. Oh, yeah. yes. Test it for safety. You yeah. have to test it for safety. So it was good. It, it definitely like, you know, no problems at all. <laughs> I would pay to see Gene on a bouncy castle. I've I've done that many many times in my career. I'm sure now, you I have. Think I think I'm a little long in the tooth, but um, I've got something special for you guys today. Um, RB, this is a little before your time, but this is directed right at Jay Wall and Chris. I want to share something with you guys. Take a look at this bad boy. Baby. <laughs> oh. I got my speaker. Yeah, you find... screw you, jerks. <laughs> Sorry. This was that, was that the awesome. extra one that I had that I listed on eBay? Did you, did you find let, that option let, there? Let me, just, let me just tell you something. Our wonderful producer, Coach Mark Hannon, actually has, I don't know, sympathy. He's actually a sentient human being, and he gave me one. So I'm going to be listening to whatever I want. Well, actually, I'm not because he forgot to give me the power cord. So this thing is a giant doorstop or a brick right now. But it still looks really good. It's a good, it's a good, it. it's a good wall ornament. Yeah, but it, it doesn't work. Wall. I just carry it around and go, this is my speaker. I got it. So guess you... who went to the top of my Christmas card list? Thank you, coach. Gene, Mic you need drop. To... Or, or should I say speaker drop? I'm out. You need Yo, to reach Gene, back Gene out to that young to... lady that you were on the date with. Yes, and, thank and you. That's what I was going to say. Hey, I got my you got the speaker. I got my speaker. I got, <laughs> I got my speaker. My... I'm going to bring it on your next date just to, just to tell the story. Hey, I'm sure that'll go yeah, over well. Just, I'm just going to let you guys in on something crazy. I got my speaker for the first time. You know, I'm no longer the butt of the joke. I'm actually part of the in crowd now. Let's see how that goes. Well, now I need wait one. Till... <laughs> wait till Jay Wall and I start uh, flashing the charger. That came with our speakers. <laughs> yeah. You do get yeah. it right now. Coach, I really could use the charger for the thing. I wanted to actually play Mutie, my German house marching band, on it, but it, it has no juice. So I was like, I'm just going to have to go with the visual aid on this one. So, Oh, my goodness. This is the fun that I missed last week. I was, <laughs> I was in Memphis for the FedEx St. Jude Championship, first event of the FedEx Cup playoffs. It's good to get back out on tour. I'd let RB have some fun out there for a little bit just to get his feet wet, but it's always good to be around the reps and the pros and to see what's going on. And I got to say, there was a lot going on last week. And I guess before we get into that, should we let you know that this week's episode of Fully Equipped is brought to you by good friends at Fujikura and the new Ventus TR line. If you want to know more about the Ventus TR line, go check it out on golf.com. We've done some pretty extensive write-ups 
on uh, on Shaft Education, on the new Shafts that it recently released, which are the black and the red. The blue was already out there on tour. You probably already know Ventus because it is the most played Shaft on the PGA Tour for the last two seasons. It has two major wins in 2022. It is, I would say, without a doubt, the hottest Shaft on the PGA Tour at the moment. But what's cool about this shaft is it's not fully replacing the original Ventus, which I kind of like. The new Ventus TR is just going to be a more stable version. So if you're one of those guys that likes Ventus, but maybe looking for a bit more stability, maybe you're a guy that's on the faster side, Ventus TR is a really great option. It's packed with all kinds of technology beyond just stability with the VelaCore technology that we've seen before. It is a, gro- a great profile in three different models. You've got the red, which is going to be a bit more high launch, blue, which is going to be your mid launch shaft and black. The one that we've seen guys like Rory and Tiger use, that's going to be your low launch, low spin, really good for drivers. Great for fairy woods comes at all different shapes or not shapes, but all different weights <laughs> and flexes, man. I'm off today after being away from the pod. Yeah. Shapes, all different shapes, you know, squares, rectangles. No, <laughs> yeah, it, again, not? it's, it's a great product. Go check it out. Fujikura Ventus TR. And Chris, if you want to go check it out, I'm pretty sure they could find it. Maybe a true spec. I mean, maybe a true spec. 22nd, they're going to be in all the studios. Yeah, it's a good one. Anyway, go check it out. Fujikura Ventus TR. Doesn't come in different shapes. Sorry. All right. So I wanted to talk to equipment reps last week and go through some of the most interesting gear trends from the past season. And one of the things that I found quite interesting is every time I asked a rep, Hey, talk to me about your most interesting equipment trends you saw for your main, for your brand. Everybody was like, that's a really good question. Like I just kind of started putting people on the spot, which I kind of like because when you don't give, when you don't give reps an opportunity to, to think about, just have them go off the cuff, you get some really interesting answers. So I want to run through six responses that had a little bit of crossover, meaning I heard it from multiple manufacturers, which sort of made me feel like it was more of a trend beyond just one manufacturer. And the first trend that I want to point out, so if you will recall back when Bryson won the 2019 US Open, he hinted at the possibility of testing 47 and 48 inch drivers. And, you know, we saw even just with Bryson hinting, he never actually used one in competition but just him merely hinting at the fact that he might cause a whole lot of pros, including Phil Mickelson, who won the the 21 PJ championship with a driver that was just under 48 inches. A lot of guys tried out longer, longer, obviously is going to give you more speed, but it's going to decrease your accuracy, but pros, Hey, you're always looking for an edge. Got to try it. Well, in 2022, after talking to some reps, it's actually gone the opposite way. So we're now seeing guys going shorter in length, meaning, uh, as an example, I, I talked to Titleist and they, they highlighted Cam Smith who went to 44 and a half inches at the U S open. So we are seeing pros go shorter than 45. It's nothing new, but again, considering where we were now, we're seeing pros prioritize control. I mean, are you, are you surprised that we're now seeing shorter lengths? I mean, the USGA installed uh, a new length limit. So it's now 46 inches instead of 48, but does it surprise you that guys are actually going shorter now? 
curious, what do you find in fittings? That's that to me, like, is, are consumers asking for that? Because like, I don't find that there's a lot of people asking me for long drivers anymore. Like, I mean, I tried a 47 and a half inch driver for, uh, let's call it nine holes. I didn't hit a fairway. I, I missed a lot of drives really poorly. And uh, like I said, I, it was, it was a nine hole experiment and that was the end of that. But, uh, do you find from the consumer level, is there any question about it or is it mostly sticking to the 45 or 45 and a half? And for a long time, we had standard length for our fitting matrix at 45 and very rarely did we deviate from that, uh, with the exception of maybe an extra quarter inch or so, um, the trend, however, for us has been 45 and a half this past year or so. So we've actually bumped up our standard length uh, to 45 and a half. And that's helped you know, kind of be competitive with a lot of the just stock off the rack drivers that come in at 46. Uh, just from a speed perspective, still giving a little bit of an advantage to better ball striking and control, but keeping up in that, that speed realm. And doesn't surprise me at all that we're seeing that trend go back the other direction. I mean, average length on the PGA Tour was 44 and a half for, I mean, a long time. And then there was you know, obviously that blip on the radar with longer is better is faster and so on and so forth. But no, no surprise that they are finding very quickly that shorter is more accurate and they got all the speed they need. Well, I, I think it I think it's a testament to something that I believe, but I was I kind of came out with a statement, but I was somewhat nervous when I came out with it that I was going to be proven wrong that guys like Bryson are the anomalies in that, you know, you get to a point where yeah, you can get another five, seven, eight, even ten miles an hour more of ball speed. But if you're OB, it doesn't matter. And and if you can't control it and you know, there's so many guys on the tour. Now I say the two, I should say tours um, that play the power fade. And the reason that they do that is they can play the high draw and get another 10, 15 yards, but they don't want to. They feel like they have plenty of length and they'd rather put the ball in the fairway. So it seemed to me that uh, that length is always self-regulating. You know, I remember 15, 20 years ago, everybody raced to 46 and then 47. And then all of a sudden they reeled it back to 44 and a half, 45. And the reason was the average player could not control that. And they just left it wide open for the most part. So I, I, I believe the same thing was going to happen on the tour. But the other part of me was like, huh, maybe there's this generation of athletes that are coming up that do have this superb hand-eye coordination that can handle that. But I kind of think we're just pushing the limits of what your brain is capable of repeating on a, a consistent basis, delivering that club head. And when you get too fast, the ball starts spraying all over the place. It reminds me of the, uh, when the burner first came back to, to retail and it was the, uh, the red bottom with not like the very first one, I kind of had this webbed crown on it. It was burner. And then uh, one of the adjustable drivers from TaylorMade was when they were doing like, um simultaneous launches there was like the distance one and then the the like shorter control or like adjustable one and the first thing that time that driver hit retail it was 46 inches that was one of the first ones with like a 49 gram shaft even in like the the regular and the stiff flexes and you know this was when i would say fitting from a retail perspective has come a very very long way but you know a lot of companies and they weren't the only ones i'm not just putting the blame on them or the onus on them but they were, they knew that the person was likely going to buy the one they hit the furthest and not the straightest. So even if they hit 
five drivers and they hit one that went 275 and everyone else looked like a fountain dispersion chart, they're probably going to buy the, the longer one. And, you know, it offered a lot more distance. And I know that I found, um, and I'm sure Jonathan, I'm, I'm sure, I, I think your experience is the same, but when I did my fitting at Titleist for the TSR, I started at my 45 and a half inch stock length and kind of slowly worked my way down to just under 45 because looking from like a strokes gain perspective, I didn't lose really any distance, but I hit it straighter. And that's, uh, that's where we ended up. And that was under 45 inches. So we'll see how that works out when I, when I get the chance to actually test it on the golf course, when it, if it does, when, it, when, and if it does, if, and when it does you up. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's something that's going to continue because the more fairways you hit, even if it's like a little bit giving up, you're, you're going to score better. So when we were out at TPI, we were shooting some video that I'll drop when the TSR launch is finally here and I finish up. I'm looking around and kind of waiting and Arby's just over here, just ripping fairway woods. And I said, is he going to be done soon? And they're like, I mean, yeah, I think another 20 minutes went by and I'm like, man, and I, that was really the first time that I noticed you could have just stayed out there the whole day testing every different shaft, every different length, every different loft. I, I loved it. I loved seeing you. You, you were in a good gear space at that point. I don't know how your back felt the next day, but I know you probably enjoyed it in the moment. It was fun. Yeah. Um, I just, I like, I like the, I like seeing the differences. Anytime you have the chance to test product head to head, like, you know, no one ships me four drivers. People, people assume that like stuff just shows up in boxes and boxes and boxes of gear, but you know, you get yeah. the one that you're fit for and to be able to test everything is always really cool. And you know, when it comes to fairy woods, I love going through fairy woods and looking at trajectories and uh, yeah, I, I definitely geeked out a little bit there. I'd say I didn't hurt as much the, the day after the, the, the title is fitting as I did the first day after using the bouncy castle for like 15 minutes. <laughs> I couldn't, I, could, I didn't feel like quite like gene climbing mountains, but like climbing up the stairs in my house, I was like, what are these muscles? And they realized, oh, it's because you've been bouncing on a bouncy castle for God knows how long. So I believe that a hundred percent. That's tiring, man. That's a workout. Oh yeah. All right. Number two, this was an interesting one to me because, you know, the, the shorter length I'm, I can get guys prioritizing total performance and control over pure distance. But I talked to UST tour rep, Scott Wilkerson and, uh, and Paul Legering goes by Lego. He's the, uh, head of true tempers tour department out on tour. And they both mentioned that they've started to see more guys going to higher spin products, not just in the graphite, but also in the steel and just being willing to try it out. And Scott said for, from the graphite perspective, they've seen their link blue shaft, see more use out on tour. And he just said it, a lot of it has to do with the golf balls and the heads have just gotten so low spin out on tour that guys are seeing that the numbers, the spin rates that they're seeing are just not sustainable. So they're looking to try and find a way to get the spin back up. And one of the ways is to not change the head, but to, to change the shaft to try and get more spin. And Lego actually said the same thing from the steel perspective. And he has an interesting, he, he's looking at this from an interesting point of view because before he was at True Temper, he's been at True Temper for the last six years, he was at TaylorMade. And he did a whole lot of driver fittings. And one of the things that he said he's now seeing in the steel department is kind of similar to what he was seeing with the drivers is 
they're trying to to optimize not just the ball for driver but the ball for for irons and you know that's one of the things he's like guys want guys want more spin in their in their you know in their steel product in their irons but they're also not willing to to sacrifice anything off the metal woods and a lot of that credit to the ball manufacturers you know the ways that they're able to to optimize a golf ball for not only you know off the tee but then also maintain a, a playable level of spin going into the green and around the green so um yeah more spin seems to be something that a lot of these reps are seeing um Tony Finau comes to mind. He was one guy who we had him on the podcast and he talked to us about, he likes to see, you know, sometimes 26, 2700 spin with the driver. And, you know, I would think that that most golfers, if they were to hear a tour pro was at 26 or 2700, they might kind of think that was on the higher side, but Tony's looking for that kind of control, which also goes back to the, to the shorter length. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is uh we did a lot of testing i don't know about a year or so ago really chasing kind of optimal launch and spin characteristics and we would get down to say you know we get up to 13 14 degrees launch 2000 spin and the ball goes forever but what happens is and what i realized is even with tour pros they've got a plus or minus tolerance and it's usually two to 300 RPM. And if you're aiming for 1900 or 2000, the low end or the floor of that, that ball drops out of the sky. It does some weird things. Whereas the high end's fine. But if you move that kind of midpoint from 2000 to 24 or 2500, then you got flexibility on both sides where you can get up 27. You don't really want to be as the tour pro, I don't think, unless you're really in the control over 2800. But still, you can get away with it at 2,800, but still, your low end is 2,100, and you can control that. It's something else that I noticed in, in regard to this distance chasing was your margin of error on the low side of your range really could get you in trouble. Whereas if you set it at 22, 2,300, you've got a nice range um, you know, of your miss or just kind of your, you know, uh, your average um, to to hit consistent shots. It's, it's funny that you bring that up, Gene, because last week in Memphis, Justin Thomas switched to the new titles TSR three driver. And just talking to the titles reps who worked with him, one of the things that they pointed out that JT really liked about the new driver was the spin consistency, the deltas between those high toe and uh, high toe, low heel misses were a lot tighter. And, and what they said is something that you just said, for JT, the the low spins were higher and the high spins were lower. So that's how he's able to tighten up that spin delta. And yeah, I mean, I noticed, I experienced it firsthand when I was out at TPI. I mean, I had some that were, um, you know, 17, 1800 RPMs. And the fitter I was working with is like, this is not, this is not sustainable. You cannot, you cannot live in this range and expect to hit good drives. Like you're going to hit some good ones that are going to be low spin that you'll be able to, to launch, you know, launch it, you know, 13, 14 with, you know, 18, 1900 spin, and you might hit a bomb, but there's a pretty good chance that you're going to also hit some truly horrendous shots, which I did on the range. And that was one of the things that they worked with me on was just trying to get that low spin up so that if you do get into that range, it's still playable enough to keep the ball 
on the planet and you're not, you're not, you know, going and looking for it in the woods, which I've been known to do. I, th- I think it applies a lot to, you know, to Tony, like Tony's example, like high, very high ball speed players. So they can kind of, you know, speed is going to be like a huge contributor there. But when you look at like the average golfer, say hundred miles and less, or even like say like an LPGA tour player, right. Which, you know, if we talk about the male club golfer it kind of fits more into this, the category of club head speed and delivery, maybe not so delivery because I think the LPGA tour players are very good at optimizing, but the idea of like still getting carry, right. Like, you know, you start seeing players hit those shots where they just, they can't keep it up in the air. And that's where, you know, you think like, Oh, you know, 17, 1700, right. Like we've heard that before. And the idea of just completely hitting knuckleballs, but the knuckleball will not stay in the air. If it, if you hit it high on the toe or you get this like weird quacker where like, even if you don't get a lot of spin axis tilt, that axis tilt is going to be exaggerated because there's not enough backspin to kind of keep it in line. So that's where people see, like, I'm sure Chris, you've seen it where you get players out in the desert when there's no wind to hit one high off the toe or high off the heel, which is probably not like a very common spot. It just goes whoop. Now that, oh, was a, that was a visual gag for all those listening, but it just goes zoop and just zips to the left or to the right off the toe. And like, Oh, I thought I hit that pretty good. It's like, well, yeah, if you, if you hit it in the middle, it would have been fine. But off the toe, the gear effect just like it over exaggerates what happens when there's no spin on the ball. I am characteristically a, a low launch, low spin player myself. And for those out there that have never experienced that shot, it actually makes the noise that RB just demonstrated for us. <laughs> so you, you will hear that auditory feedback when you, when you do hit that shot. Can we just get it one more time, RB? For those that whoop. didn't hear it. Whoop. Whoop. Like this, it's like the old slide whistle from the cartoon. Whoop. It's not good. Every time I hit it's, that it's shot now, no, I'm gonna, it's not good. gonna make that noise. <laughs> you need to have you need to have like the you need to have an eye out like the audio board on your phone, like where it goes. Need that when you hit a quack hook. Boop. Quack hook. I have never heard it referred to as that. No, oh. but it's going it's going in the vocabulary now. That you're gonna, That's you're not gonna a Canadian it's not a Canadian thing. It's not a Canadian thing. I'm telling you that. I don't think I've ever heard so many sound effects on this podcast. This is really impressive. Coach, if coach was doing pay, his job, he'd be getting some need, some drops to, out of these. You need to bank this so that we can, you know, just have buttons to push with RB sound effects. Those are awesome. Yeah, Mark, come on. Coach says he's, he's on, on it. it. All right. He's on yeah. it. We got sound bites coming. <laughs> Okay. Um, a couple here rapid fire. And then the last one we can, we can kind of dig into a little bit more. So I talked to Taylor made, you would think stealth got to be the obvious choice, especially with the change in the face technology going to carbon fiber. No, it was a stealth product that they highlighted, but it was actually the stealth UDI, which is their utility iron. And one of the things that Keith Barbaro, their head of tour for TaylorMade said is, you know, it was one of the products that they've struggled with in recent years that, that UDI. Um, one of the things that he mentioned were guys were struggling to find a two or a three iron, which is typically what you'd see players use during like an open championship where you might need to flight the ball. Uh, some guys carry it on a more regular basis. DJ was one of those guys who would, uh, who was known to carry the UDI on a more regular basis. And now he was saying that the guys are just seeing a touch more spin with the product, with the stealth version. It's easier to control. He's had a bunch of guys say it's the best UDI product they've had in years. So that was a bit of a shocker because I would have put money on it being the stealth driver. 
Um, Callaway, again, and this is where it goes to like clubs that I would have never picked. They highlighted their Apex UW. And it being a good secondary option off the tee, it's still got that sole that makes it playable from the fairway in the rough. It's a half inch, uh, an inch and a, sorry, an inch and a half longer than, uh, or shorter, I should say, than the standard fairway would. And they've just noticed that a lot of players are able to control this club better than your standard five would. Um, even when it comes to some of the misses, they've noticed it just being a bit more consistent. So Callaway and Taylor made both just shocking me with Apex UW, which is a great club. I mean, have you guys tried out that Apex UW? I have. It's, I mean, for a guy that's not a fairway wood guy, it's about it's about the closest thing I've come to to actually considering putting one in the bag. I love that club. I uh, I fought to to add it to the matrix here, True Spec and. And the the tip diameter on it just made it virtually impossible for us to to put it in the matrix. If we would have tried to use existing hybrid length shafts, it would have been way too light. If we would have used our 43 and 42 and a half inch shafts, it would have been way too heavy. And to add a bunch of shafts just for one specific club, it just didn't make sense for us. So unfortunate miss, but great product. RB, did you test out the UDI, the Stealth? Yeah, actually, um, UDI is has been great, and I actually played my first round. I was messing around with the uh, the DHY, and I I can be you know I, I tested I I hit them with their stock shafts in them, which were very good. Uh, but I had a couple different options kicking around, and because I I do what I do and my brain works the way it does, I had to reshaft them and, and take them out. And once I had put a different shaft into the the DHY. I, I didn't go to the range. I went out and played nine holes with a friend the other day. And uh, the first shot I hit with it, I said some explicitives after I hit out. Holy smokes. That thing was amazing. It just, it was like, it was, it was a good lie, a little bit in the rough. Um, but again, not heavy rough, just nice dry, whatever summer. And it, I literally took off and it was, the, it, the window was way higher than I thought it was going to be, uh, which is exactly what uh, Matt, uh, Matt Bovey said from, ta- uh, from Taylor. He's like, no, you'll hit it higher. And I was like, okay, that's good. Um, but to see it immediately and see it hit that window was very impressive. And I can understand why players really like it. Um, and that, I guess that, you know, all of those clubs are all kind of in that category of proper gapping, right? As you get to those lower spin clubs on the higher end of the bag, how, how important that is for players, the regular golfers and, and for tour players. And as far as the, the UW is concerned, I know you actually said it in your, in your piece, Jonathan was, um, a friend of like Johnny wonder who works for Callaway. Uh, you know, fellow Toronto guy, good friends with him. And uh, we had, we had been talking a few weeks ago and he said, you know, the hybrid is almost kind of dead on tour because we have utility irons and long irons that are really fast off the face. And we have fairy woods and the UW that kind of fit this gap. So it allows for all these different gapping options and, you know, tour play, we kind of say it in like this weird way. And, you know, they're way better golfers than all of us, but the idea of optimizing those parts of the bag that can be difficult, these clubs really help for everybody. And uh, it makes sense why the UDI and, you know, DHY in my case, which is one that I've been kind of messing around with or the UW, Johnny, you still owe me one, by the way, it's a 19 degree. It's fine. You know, don't worry about sending a shaft. I got lots kicking around. Um, But that to me is what highlights why those clubs are so important because they do fit this interesting role. And when you have a shorter golf club, especially with the UW, um, swing plane gets a little bit steeper. So out of the rough way easier to hit. And you know, who doesn't want that? All right. Last two, one of them 
not so surprising because the guy has been having a lot of success with this putter. Tony Finau and his ping answer 2D. Not so much the putter, but the alignment aids that he has on it. We've done a bunch of stories on how Tony kind of puts himself in the best position possible at address to make sure his face is square. He has this little sharpied silver arrow on the uh, on the heel of his putter. And then he also adds a, a, a just a sharpied line in the notch there by the neck. And that helps him make sure that he's got his hands in the right position. And so talking to Ping, Ping's Dylan Goodwin, who works on their putters out on tour, he said that he hasn't really seen so many guys, even though PLD has been really popular this year out on tour for them. He hasn't seen a lot of guys going away from their current models. It's just been more tinkering with alignment aids. And that's always something that I think is really important to hit on is sometimes your putter might not be working for you and it might be easy to just say, ah, the heck with it. Let's just go look for a new one. Maybe it's worth trying to to add an alignment aid. You know, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> well, I guess I am right now because I've already said it, but it's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you to draw lines on your putter, but hey, Tony Finau did it. So I can't really tell you not to. And uh, actually I've seen, I remember back uh, a couple of years ago when uh, Ian Finnis, Finno is uh, Tommy Fleetwood's caddy and he bought Tommy and an old two ball for, for his birthday, bought it off eBay. It was a putter that he had grown up using as a kid and he sharpied an alignment line between the two balls on the top. So it's certainly something you can do and, and maybe it saves you some, some extra cash in the, in the long run, but yeah, alignment aids, for ping, that was a biggie in the last one. Call it the Justin Thomas effect. Scotty Cameron, tour rep, Drew Page said it's the pyramid of influence. And we've talked a little bit about this on the podcast before. When guys win with stuff on the PGA Tour, it's very common for other pros to ask even the following week, like, hey, can I try out that shaft? Or, hey, you got any of those putters? And JT, from what Drew said, has uh, caused a run on mallet putters. So the one that he's using, that custom Phantom uh, Phantom X5 with the knuckle neck, which some people also might call a plumber's neck. It's a neck that you're, you more commonly see on blade putters. They started to see a lot more requests for the JT putter and just mallets in general. So... Yeah, it's been an interesting year for gear. I, I think it'll get way more interesting uh, in the future now that now that Liv is part of the equation. Maybe we have some more gear stories from the tour side to talk about. But yep, those were the six that stood out to the reps that I talked to. And, and I did. I think some of them were, were obvious ones and a couple of them were, were big surprises. I think the mallet one makes a lot of sense. And, and if we look at the consumer uh, like levels, even like, I think, again, we pr- I probably see more mallets being used both for alignment and also just for forgiveness, right? Like I, I mean, I've got racks of putters back here. I got a couple different options as far as graphite chaps are concerned. I got a Fujikura one back here. I've got a, like a, one of the stability ones as well. And you know those are great for blade putters when you're looking to increase kind of how the, how effective it works on misses, right? Well, you add that to a mallet putter, you're, you're just increasing the stability, increasing the stability. And just 
know, heel toe misses with a driver. And I, I, I think I take it for granted a lot of times um, when you don't see regular, like you don't play with regular golfers a lot or, you know, kind of higher handicap golfers, how often people miss around the club face on a putter, like by large margins, like huge margins. And I'm like, wow, people stink. <laughs> like, and I mean that in a nice way, but like, I, I'm, I'm not like looking down on it. It's just like, it's just shocking that you, when you see something, you're like, oh, wow. Like you kind of forget that people miss really badly. And a lot of this equipment that we talk about, as far as forgiveness is concerned, really does benefit these players. So, you know, when you see some of the best players in the world saying, man, I'd really like a little bit more forgiveness on, on some short putts or alignment or more consistent ball speed on putts outside, say 25 feet, when you miss maybe a little bit around the face on those longer strokes, you can see why, as you get closer to the hole, even why something like that would benefit the uh, benefit the better player as well. And um, I mean, again, I, I default you because you you work with so many people with the fitting side of things like day to day. I don't I kind of my experience is anecdotal on the golf course. But do you do probably what one third the amount of blades that you do with mallet putters when it comes to fittings? I mean, I would start that answer by saying that. I wish people would spend more time and actually consider getting fit for a putter. I mean, that is our lowest category by far is putter fitting and it can make a huge dramatic difference on consistency and immediately take strokes off your game. Don't have to do anything to change your swing, just get fit for the right putter. But yeah, as far as the ratio goes, it's, it's very heavy on the mallet side for sure. Not even close. Uh, True spec uses Quintic, right? Uh, no, we're foresight exclusively, uh, foresight, okay. for the, yeah. So we use the GC quad. Cool. Well, we saw, you know, I, I, I texted J wall, I think right after it happened the next day, you know, to your point, RB, uh, Zalatoris at Tory, you know, he had that putt lined up to, to win it on 18 and he hit it a good three quarters of an inch towards the toe. And this is a this is a tour player, and we've done putter testing, and because the face is flat, you get gear effect on some of these mallet putters. Now, granted, I don't know what the break was or anything, but he hit that ball on the toe, and he left that ball about two inches to the left of the cup, which to me said that his miss caused gear effect on that 15-foot uphill putt that cost him the tournament because he missed it that half inch. So it, even tour players under pressure do not strike the ball in the exact same place. And it's, it's something that I think benefits every golfer. I know from, from like, again, personal experience, I've got a wall full of blade putters behind me here, except for like a couple. And the, the putter that's in my bag right now is a mallet, which I have not used in a very long time. And I don't know if it, I would say so much of it was alignment, but just the the confidence of maybe missing around the face a little bit more. Uh, you know, I, I, I credit being out on tour one of the first weeks uh, being here, I think it was at the Travelers. And I, you know, I saw some nice mallet putters on the putting green. You start talking to people, start talking to people. Next thing you know, one's in the bag and not from there, not from tour. I didn't show it that way. Uh, but I had to let go and I decided that I, I wanted to make my, I was like, okay, I got to get myself one of these putters. And, you know, couple weeks later I, I decided to order one so um that, that it, it does maybe it's down, the downstream effect but i've been putting way better my stats from my my data tracking that i use on my 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 uh my phone and, and what i my wearable 
uh, has been great. So to me, that that's like probably the most important thing and, you know, it helps my score and I'll keep using it. Yeah. As we're talking about this, it makes me wonder if you were to give tour pros a truth serum, how many guys who are currently using malpetters are using it because they found the benefits or did they initially happen upon a malputter because one of their peers was putting well with it or, um, maybe just kind of word of mouth they heard from a guy. I don't know. I think it's the, it's like the analogy that I've used before is like, you don't fit one person, you fit the other people they're golfing with as well, because they kind of generally fit into the same bucket. And while tour players are playing with tour players out there all the time. And I'm sure if, if you have somebody in your group on a, like during a practice round or during a, just an event and someone starts draining a lot more putts, you're staring there looking at your caddy going, Hey, we should look at one of these and talk to the rep next time we get to the putting green. So um, again, I don't have so much experience like talking to players in that sense, but I can imagine there's definitely a trickle down effect because we've seen it with long neck putters speaking to JT. I know we see more long neck putters out on tour again with more, again, some blade styles, but the, trends are trends for a reason. And I think that, you know, someone starts seeing success, you're going to see it work its way down the line with other players. Yeah. Well, speaking of gear, having success before we get into our last topic, I want to let you know that this week's episode of Fully Equip is brought to you by our good friends, Fairway Jockey. We talk about custom golf clubs all the time on the pod, and we're often asked, where is the best place to buy custom clubs? For us, the answer is easy. There's only one place that offers the lowest prices on custom clubs, and that's fairwayjockey.com. Do your homework. No one beats their prices, and by the way, you'll save up to 15%. And when you're talking about a bigger ticket purchase like golf clubs, that can add up to big savings. Build your custom set today at fairwayjockey.com. All right. So last topic before we get into our interview that I've been stringing everybody along with for, a, <laughs> feels like a month. It's probably been a few weeks. Uh, RB with master wedge craftsman, Roger Cleveland. But when I was out on tour last week, I was talking to a couple of guys and they mentioned, have you ever seen the, the box that the USGA uses to measure club length? Now that the now that the legal limit is forty six inches, and I said, "Night, nah, we've talked about it before. There's no real, um, there's no one way to measure. Like everybody measures a little bit differently." And so they said, "It's it's literally like a mold, and you just drop the club into the mold, and if the club doesn't fit the mold, it's too long." And that's how the USGA measures club length. But it leads into a story that RB wrote for Golf.com on the right in wrong ways to measure golf club length. And I would think that most people out there would say, well, you just measure it, just grab a tape measure. Just just kind of lean it up against the wall and measure it and you're good to go. But RB, as you point out, it's not that easy, man. No, uh, there's there's definitely a couple ways to do it um, properly. And then the one thing about leaning up against the wall and you know, I've talked about it like many times I've done I mean, I ran into this as well. And I, I remember getting a, a set of irons one time and I was looking at it and I was going, this doesn't seem right. You set them up against a wall and like the lengths don't progress properly. And this doesn't make sense because they should be. And they're, they're like, say it was a stock set or it was a custom set, whatever it happens to be. And so it had me thinking, and I've, it's always kind of stuck in the back of my mind. So when I build golf clubs myself, I always measure length to cut length. And then I put the grip on it because for me, if I ever make an issue, if I ever change grips, I know that, that length is always going to be the same. And on tour, because of the USGA, I know a lot of them take off an inch to account the grip cap. So you can measure to the end of the club before the grip is, is installed, which I think a lot of custom 
uh, places do. Then you have measuring with the grip on. The only issue with doing it with the cut version is if it is cut at 46 inches and it's a driver, the club becomes non-conforming. So you have to, you do have to cut it that shorter length just to make sure. Um, but the reason when you set the clubs up against the wall and the measure doesn't work properly is because blade length partially dictates length when you have it and you're measuring from where the toe sits rather than the middle of the sole, which is where an actual golf club ruler is uh, measuring a golf club, either at a certain point on the sole in the middle or at a 60 degree lie angle, which is what the USGA uses and what a lot of custom club companies use as well when they're manufacturing golf clubs outside of the OEM space. And that blade length will see jumps in length. So you'll see like the three, four and five iron say in a set or four, five, six. And all of a sudden you'll, it'll look like there's a three quarter inch gap between the six and the seven. Well, that's because those companies are starting to shrink the blade length for um, just because it, it's, a, it's a shorter golf club. So they're trying to shorten the blade length, make them more compact in the shorter irons for like a looks perspective. And you, you see them up against the wall and you're like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. I get pictures all the time from people. It's like, oh, I just got my custom clubs. I just cleaned them. I put them up against the wall. They don't match in length at all. And I'm like, uh, what set do you have? And they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's this set or whatever it happens to be. In almost every case, you're looking at a progressive length set or a progressive blade length set, sorry. And from there, you know, that's why you see that inconsistency when you lay them up against the wall, but you put them on the ruler, you got your 37, 37 and a half, 38 and you're all the way good through the set. So uh, it's, a, it's a common mistake that people make when they're looking at measuring golf clubs, but you have to measure based on line up from the middle of the sole, either using a jig or a proper ruler and not just setting them up against a wall. Chris, how do you, do you guys, uh, choose back, do you guys cut with to, to uh, shaft length? All of our prescriptions are, are cut length, yeah. So we, all of our prescriptions are stepped according to cut length because I mean, basically the, the reasons that you had mentioned. So we use uh, Mitchell products for all of our measuring devices when it comes to you know, swing weight and table rulers and law fly machines. And all of those are calibrated uh, within basically what our HQ specs are. We have a calibration club that we send to all of our studios to calibrate because what people don't know is a lot of the measuring devices can have a little bit of variance just device to device, even if they're made out of the exact same components. So table rulers, law fly machines, and swing weight scales can all have a little bit of a variance uh, machine to machine. But we, we will build to cut length. Yeah, that's a good point. I, and that's why when I, I tell people all the time, like if you're getting your lie loft checks, go to the same place every time. Because you might see tiny variances in, in the lie loft machine because I've had issues with, let's say, customers or people in the past where it's like, oh, you built me a set of golf clubs. Let's say someone was maybe more gear centric than someone else. And then they go to they go play and they maybe don't play as well as they would like to. And they're a gear junkie and they go to someone else to get their clubs measured. And next thing you know, you get a phone call and say, hey, you didn't do this right. And I'm like, listen, you bring those golf clubs back right now and I'll do everything in front of you on my machines. It comes to swing weight and lie loft and everything like that. They're like, oh, well, they already got bent because the other person did them because they said you didn't do it right. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not touching them now because that's not my work anymore. So uh, I think it's important to like know your club builder and know their machine because that is going to be kind of your spec going forward. And the, to your point, as you know, Gene, my, my, since I've been 16, having my lie loft machine, I have the same, <laughs> I have the exact same spec club that has been checked with two different uh, digital lie loft machines and another swing weight scale. 
So uh, if I do ever kind of move my swing weight scale around and I'm not sure that it's, it's calibrated properly, I throw my, my club on there. I have the specs basically written out on the club face so they don't go anywhere. And uh, yeah, you got to make sure your clubs are right all the time. That's a good time to say, I have my speaker now. So this is my day going forward that I have my speaker. So yeah, <laughs> we all have our, oh boy, look at that. It just sucked to something. <laughs> the magnet on this thing is crazy. <laughs> all right. Well, okay. Before we get to the interview with Roger, RB, what shirt are you wearing? Oh, um, Arrested Development. It's one of my favorite yes, TV shows. I knew it. Uh, <laughs> right. I, saw, blue, I saw Blutes and I was like, it's Arrested Development. If it's not, then I would be really disappointed. No, oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's, blue. it's the banana. It's the banana suit. It's the banana stand. There's always money in the banana stand. <laughs> so it's Blutes' famous frozen bananas. Um, I got a shirt years ago. I wish I had a second. I've like I've literally worn this thing out. Um, I need another one. But uh, yeah, I no, I, it's one of my favorite shows of all time there's too many there's way too many good lines and uh yeah i could rewatch it over and over all right well i feel like that's a perfect segue into our interview with one of the greatest wedge designers in the history of the game roger cleveland he has designed i mean even going back before callaway i mean he is he is cleveland golf and now he is designing wedges for for callaway most recent one is the Jaws Raw. RB had a chance to talk to him about the design and technology behind that wedge and a whole bunch of other topics. Enjoy the interview. Roger Cleveland. Roger, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm, I'm pretty good. Thank you. Thank you. Getting it's, ready to go to Scotland. Uh, a little Scottish Open coming tomorrow. Oh, very nice. Yeah, that's uh, – I see I wasn't even going to ask you about that. So uh, going to be doing that and then the Open as well? I'm not. I'm. Uh, we're introducing the new wedge, uh, the Jaws Raw, to the tour in uh, Europe, our European players, and we're going to be at uh, uh, the tur tournaments at Renaissance, and uh, Archer Field is right next to it, and we're going to do a lot of work with our players there. So. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, you know, that, that brings us to an interesting point, is, you now speaking of the new wedges, yeah. when, when we talk about those, what would you say is the thing that you're most excited to be showing to the players this coming week? And, you know, we saw, we saw some in the bag of the travelers. Andrew had one in the bag when he won. Yep. Uh, what yep. are you most excited about to showcase to these guys? Well, <clears throat> there it, it's um, the entire package is, is pretty uh, compelling because you, uh, the, these guys have been using raw wedges, uh, meaning so they don't uh, reflect sun and uh, there's nothing, uh, filling, uh, although it's really, really small, uh, filling uh, the groove capacity and the edge sharpness or edge uh, radius of the groove, which uh, really impacts spin and uh, robustness. And so, so you have the ability to have a raw face from the par area for the, where the hosel uh, juncture uh, uh, in the heel of the, of the face of the club all the way to the toe and so you have no uh, distraction or reflection um, uh, bothering you when you open the face. Square is fine, but when you open the face, sometimes uh, you get a little uh, disoriented. Um, so we have that. We have a, a new sole that I'm really excited about with a chamfer on the leading edge, especially on the higher lofts. Um, it acts as a, a, a second skid plate. You have a skid plate with the sole and the bounce and so forth. But now you have a, a higher bounce, smaller um, 
area that uh, prevents you from digging. And that's, uh, that's really critical, especially when you get into some tight lies and when you're pitching, when you're hitting full shots, 30 yards or 40 yards on, um, it's, it's, not, it's less important because you're hitting the ball first. You have forward shaft leading. But when you're trying to pitch the ball and trying to put the sole on the ground and let it skid through uh, or slide underneath the ball, um, then it really is critical. So that's really, uh, you know, really good for uh, and new for us. And I think very exciting for all players, uh, whether whatever handicap you have um, and in all conditions. Uh, the other part is the back of the wedge. The whole wedge is chrome except for the face. So it's going to look really pristine for a long, long time and, uh, and look really sharp and match the irons in your bag and so forth. So uh, that's going to be uh, that's going to be nice. So, and the in the silhouette at address, I think is uh, really compelling and, and gives you a lot of confidence. Uh, it has a little uh, straighter um, heel toe radius, um, so it's uh, and it extends through the par area up through the hosel, so it's very easy to align. But uh, it still has a, a radius, a tighter radius on the sole, so you can get in and out of different lies uh, pretty well. So, and <clears throat> I would be remiss in not pointing out that it has the, the most aggressive groove in, in golf. So we have a, a side angle on the groove that's uh, 37 degrees, which creates a uh, edge radius that uh, is right against the rules of golf and, and uh, com complying of course, but uh, it's gonna give you a lot of spin. That actually, Brings me to my next question, which I think is is from from my perspective as a as just a nerd and, and loves the idea of the development process. How has the tooling process for you guys and the man like your manufacturing? How has that changed to allow you to continue to push that limit? Because I think if we look back at you know investment casting years and years ago to now, where we have something where you're you're forging ahead or you have a head and then you're going through and you're, you're CNC milling it, you are, you're getting that tolerance down to like the tightest amount possible. So when every time you get a wedge, you know that it's going to absolutely spin as much as possible. So how has that changed for you like, through this wedge and then, you know, leading up to this as well? Well, it, it is, you know, we spend around eight minutes machining the face of each wedge and the grooves. So, and then we change out cutters about every 20 wedges or so. Um, we have to change cutters so we keep the sharpness of the, the cutter. So it takes, it's a, it's a lot of uh, effort, a lot of expense, but uh, we have determined that uh, that is absolutely critical to, to spend. When, when I first started years ago, we would just cast the groove in and uh, it was, uh, it was <laughs> looking back, it was, it was uh, not great. It, it was, uh, I mean, we were accurate in cutting the groove uh, in, in the master and, and uh, but then you uh, did a, t a tooling and, and then you had, you know, constant issues and, and, uh, and so it, it is not that precise and, uh, of course, the grooves were a little bit bigger. We had more more tolerance uh, back in those days, and the USGA RNA changed changed that a little bit. So we had to really 
tighten up our methodology of making the groove or putting it on the face. So it is critical, uh, especially in your higher lofts, I think. Um, and then we, we actually change the sidewall so we don't quite spin as much as we go down. You don't want a 52 or a 48 degree wedge uh, spinning back all the way. So uh, we, uh, because you're hitting the ball first, you're hitting it with a lot more speed and, and which creates spin. So we, we modify that. But the, the amount of effort we put on or put in the development of the groove is, is quite something more, more so than you can imagine. We're, we're constantly, I mean, even now we've introduced uh, the jaws raw, but we're constantly looking at, at the groove and how to, how to, you know, increase the spin even now. Yeah. It's, I always find it interesting because no, that is, that's not just a wedge story. That's a Callaway story. If you think about it, because we talk about the golf ball and the way you guys are x-raying golf balls. I think it's really funny when even now, like I was, I was at the range early this morning and I find a, like a random golf ball in, in the bucket that's there. And it's not a range ball. It's just something that was painted. And I think back, like, I don't know how this ball even survived. It's probably like 50 years old. I'm like, I can't imagine the, the, how precise they could have been at that time. And you know, I'm sure they were doing their absolute best, but when you compare that to a modern golf ball now, it's like, how did, how did that translate to how well golfers played versus now that we've got golf balls that are x-rayed and like checked for all these different like processes going through and they're not wound anymore. And there's all these things that are basically taken out of the process to make it better. And now we have the ability with clubs to like put more processes in to actually make them as high as quality as possible. Well, thank goodness we the, we benefit from all of that science and engineering and effort from from our R and D team back in Chicopee. Uh, uh, um, it's it's amazing, just amazing. I think of like a, a modern golf ball now is like a, a properly balanced F one car. I couldn't imagine trying to yes. drive an unbalanced car at that speed. Well, I can't imagine you know like Jack Nicholas winning as many majors as he did with some of the equipment that or ball equipment that he that he used. Uh, I, I heard stories or heard stories about he would take um, his allotment for the tournament and go out and play, go through the the, the balls and, and hit shots. And he would know what to look for. He would know the apex. He would know different things of, of the shot when he hit it. <laughs> and he would be calling out the balls, you know, and uh, so... Yeah, yeah, the old ball yeah, ring. Right? They, they carry the ball ring right to make sure. Yeah, I never <laughs> yeah. seen that where they they test the um, they'll put it through to test for roundness just right. because at the time too many shots and that thing would go out around, which I always think is really yeah, all interesting. the pros had had that little device in their bag or on their bag. Lucky for us, the only thing I Not need anymore. now is a, is a brush. Yeah. Um. So, what speaking to like the technology part and you know the the manufacturing on the to the end consumer, but from the development side of things, how has technology from CAD to 3D printing to how has that actually sped up the process? Because I can't imagine now with the ability to do all of that so much more in-house and being able to, you know, here's a wedge, let's 3D print it. We have a couple hours, we keep it looks like versus, yeah, we'll, we'll get to take a look at this a little bit later. How much faster it's, is that uh, now? I'm a kid in the candy store and uh, uh, we have, you know, some great guys on, in, in the CAD and they're, they're so familiar now with, with, uh, with the product and what we're doing and where we're going. And, you know, we have a number of new 
things coming and and um, and we're constantly messing with that and and uh, trying to bring uh, exciting tools for for everybody in all levels and um, so but to use CAD you can you can you can uh, it, it was back in the day it was so hard and so slow to to uh, take a master which was an aluminum master or to try and start to shape it and so forth you would it would take it would take weeks and uh, um, now it, it just takes days and then you can go out and machine it and uh, in our machine shop which is incredible and and actually test the product in a couple of days rather than months you know so it really sped up the ability to uh, to uh, make a make a wedge and also to analyze the wedge when you're we're doing CAD we're looking at mass properties where where the weight distribution is and where we want it and we start messing around and testing things like that so we've we've uh, developed a way for the wedge to actually feel a little bit better and uh, which is really critical you want confidence and, and great feel and soft little shots and so forth and that's what uh, the jaws raw gives you but we're constantly looking at that too the the harmonics of, of, a, of a contact of the ball, you know, in, in, uh, in different locations. So there's all kinds of science going into this thing now. The, the acoustic element is, I think, is really fascinating because I'm sure at, at the time you, you could only kind of speculate what something sounded like, whereas now you can really hopefully dial into the idea of like how it's going to sound as far as vibration is concerned, different impacts around the club head. So then when you get the finished product, it's not like, oh, it sounds like this. We got to go back. It's like, no, it sounds like it's supposed to. And then, you know, we're on to the next step. That's right. That's right. We got some really, uh, I mean, we have at Callaway, <clears throat> what really compelled me when I first uh, began years ago with, with uh, Dick Helmstetter at, at Callaway was the, the emphasis on engineering and, and R&D and, and trying things and, and uh trying to get ahead of everything ahead of the curve and and we're still doing that and we're our spend is the biggest spend in in, in any golf company and uh, it shows that's cool yeah speaking of of chicopee and in, in like the manufacturing process there's an old video on youtube that i found of like them making like spalding clubs back in the old chicopee plant uh -huh. and the and the, they're 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 turning using the aluminum master yeah and they're turning it back to the to the wooden heads and then someone would check the loft and they take this big sanding belt to get make sure the loft was right on these clubs i'm like luckily for us we don't have to worry about that anymore but uh, it is fascinating how much that's changed in my prior life at cleveland that's you know we made persimmon woods and you there were like 70 steps to make a persimmon wood it was wonderful but um each successive step could could mess it up and it was by hand so you had to be you had to have some art there some some real talent I always say that's the that's the like amazing thing about metal woods now is seeing the newer the newer heads of how they are that like the way the titanium is cast so thin and so precise because I've seen heads from 20 years ago that didn't even come close to the precision that we see now from something like where you see like an exploded driver like I know we've seen it with the rogue and like all those different parts like there's like they're able to track it because of all the little things they put inside of the castings which before was was by no means what it looked like I think of like just some you know, well, the club heads that would break off back in my retail days. And I'd look inside and I'm like, Oh, this is fascinating. And now the new ones look like literally like the, um, 
like space technology, uh, aerospace, oh, aerospace grade technologies, what we're looking at, oh, which is really cool. It's aerospace grade titanium and, and uh, we use, you know, high strength materials and, and it's all about weight distribution and where you're putting weight and mass and to get the, the gear effect on a, on a driver and the speed of the face. Um, it's, it's out there. Now, talking about wedges, a big component obviously is always fitting and you work with the best players in the world, but we also know that there's a lot of regular golfers out there that are just trying to find something that's going to work well for them. What is the next step in, in the fitting process? Is it helping golfers analyze turf conditions, how they hit shots? Um, what is, what is your advice for someone who's trying to pick a wedge and, and trying to understand what's going to work best for their short game? Well, um, I think it's understanding the short game and what, what, uh, uh, it, what is really needed to hit these shots. These guys, you know, spend the, the best players in the world spend quite a bit of time on their short game. Um, and what I mean that, uh, what I mean by saying that is that, um, within 40 yards, 30 yards and, and, uh, and in bunkers and so forth. They spend a lot of time and they work with it and there's a technique. It doesn't take, what I would recommend is, is um, we have a, a lot of different grinds, um, sole geometry uh, for a particular attack angle on, on pitching. So if you're steep, have a lot of set in your wrists and, and you come down you know, very steep, I mean, we have a wedge for that. Um, Ideal technique is a little different though. You want to be a little bit shallower. So you, you create more, more speed with the rotation of your body and you keep the width of the arc. So you're shallow and you can put the sole on the ground. So that's ideal technique. And one of the things that I encourage when I go out and do, you know, clinics and so forth is to encourage uh, them or the average guy to go take some lessons in the short game. They don't do that. Um, the pros out on almost all the pros are, are really aware at club pros, I mean, are aware of, of the, this need and they've really focused on it. And, and what you should do is take a, uh, take a lesson in the short game. It doesn't, uh, I mean, the short game is how, you know, I survive, you know, in my game, you know, I, I can get, get it up and down a lot of the times and, and I don't have a long game anymore. I have two short games actually. And, and uh, so you, you take some time, go out and, and, and make some effort in that and you'll, you'll, uh, you'll get rewarded. So, but to fit somebody with, without that, we have a lot of tools in, in the, the Jaws Raw bag, okay, to, to fit because we have different soul, uh, bounces different different geometries to fit fit every everybody actually yeah i can i can distinctly remember uh it would have been probably four three four years ago at the pga show um we had, I had a chance to have a conversation with you and one of the things that you said which i thought was it's always stuck with me and it's something that i tell people all the time is the fact that you know not everyone's going to have the same club head speed as xander shoffley or, or john rom like those are, are ridiculous athletes are able to control face angle and launch the ball as far as they do. But every golfer has the potential to have a great short game because it doesn't take strength. It doesn't take a ton of speed. It just takes technique. 
And I think that's one of those things that, you know, a lot of people don't go into all the time, but that was something that you said that I always remember. Cause I tell those people, cause I use my, I, you know, I'm checking boxes on myself here of like things that I mentioned on the podcast. So I'm going to mention my dad here is like, he's a 15 handicap. Yeah. He, he has no long, he, he kind of stinks with his longer clubs. I've tried everything to help him, but his short game is very good. If he is chipping and pitching, he is, I would say he, he chips and pitches like someone who is a mid to low single digit handicap golfer. Cause he just, he knows what he's trying to do. He knows what he's trying to accomplish. And he also doesn't carry a lob wedge to put himself in danger. His highest loft right. wedge is a 56 to be nice and safe. Yep. But I think that is, that is a, a, one of those things that I always remember you saying. And I thought that that was such a great piece of advice because, you know, it doesn't take, again, not everyone's going to hit 300 yards, but everyone can hit a chip shot to within a smaller circle. And I think well, that's everybody tries that's really to miniaturize their big swing. And, and ideally you don't want to do that. Um, I mean, you, you want to have lag and so forth in, in your bigger swings and irons. You want to have forward shaft lean when you're hitting the ball and so forth. And pitching the ball, you don't. So you need to understand that concept. And, and when you do, you, the light bulb goes off and, and you start to not fear that little pitch shot over a bunker, you know, and tempo and rhythm and so forth. It's, everybody has that and everybody can do it. They, they speed up, they tense up. Um, they try to be perfect. You don't need to be perfect. That, you know, some of the best players in the world actually purposely put the, the sole on, on the wedge before the ball on the ground and let it slide, not right at the ball. You want to, that, that allows you to have more loft and, and use the sole more and little things like that really are critical. That's, that's actually, what I was just going to ask you, but I was going to say the best players in the world engage the sole before the ball. And that's one of the things that a lot of people don't realize when they think, oh, I need low balance. I need low balance. I need low balance. We hear that from a lot of players to think they need to get underneath the ball. But in fact, to be able to hit those shots, you need sometimes a wider sole with a bit more balance to actually be able to create that speed. So it, in essence, skips like a stone between the ball and the ground to get that, that lift. Skids. Yeah. You want, to, you want it to skid. You don't want to dig. That's why the chamfer on the jaws raw is so critical because it, it takes that um, a tight radius on the leading edge and, and opens that up and makes it, you know, because it makes it skid. I can distinctly remember having a pretty low bounce wedge as a kid and hearing someone on television, uh, listen, just watching golf coverage, they hit a shot out of the rough. Then after the round, they asked them the question like, Oh, I, I have this really sharp leading edge on my wedge and I, I, I don't have a lot of bounce on it. So I went out to the garage and spent an hour just filing down. I could have probably shaved with the leading edge of this, this golf club by the time I was done with it as a, as a young teenager. And I, I took it out to the short game area and I was miserable. I just, I stuck everything into the ground. I said, that's not about there. I probably, something was probably lost in translation there. <laughs> no, you don't want, you don't want to play. No, 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 no. Um, now I guess the other part of this is, you know, speaking to that evolution of the soul grind and, and the shaping and all that stuff. Does that come from the way golf courses and their conditions have changed, or is it strictly a technique and improvement from the players that are, are using the golf clubs that, that is, or is it this combination of both that are kind of driving this evolution of, of soul shape? I think both. Uh, I think the conditions these days, uh, uh, they're, they're getting firmer. Um, I think agronomy and, and uh, that is preferred. I, I know on tour it's preferred you know, the firmer conditions, 
they're going to definitely see some firmer conditions in the next two weeks in in Scotland, you know, uh, uh, which will be exciting. Um, but th that's very firm. So you you don't change up your technique so much. Um, you might change your ball position and so forth. But what they do to trick you a little bit is that you would think in firmer conditions you're you're going to use a little less bounce. But in the bunkers over there, they have it soft, so you need bounce and and uh, or you'll you'll dig too much. So what a lot of guys do is your your middle wedge or your sand wedge 54 or 56 has more bounce. So they they tend to use those in the bunkers over there and the and the lob wedges, which are 58 or 60, which tend to have a little bit less bounce and more relief in the heel or something. They uh, they can work really well with firm conditions. So. That's really cool. That's how um, they approach it. Well, that's, I mean, Roger, I, I appreciate your time today. You know, I didn't, sure. I didn't, uh, that was, those were kind of all the questions. I always, I love, love being able to pick the minds of people that are involved with not only the development side of things, but also working with players because a lot of times people are kind of out on the tour, but they don't necessarily do a lot of the R and D like behind the scenes thing. And uh, you, your experience when it comes to like, creating different products and, I can, I can think of the evolution of, of Callaway wedges, whereas some of the first ones had, were, were fairly rounded on the leading edge and we'd see that and see that shape and the evolution from that. I mean, I've got, I've got X tour wedges sitting behind me that, uh, you know, pre, pre different groove rule change. Let me tell you, those things yeah. spun like crazy. Um, yeah, but, uh, it is, I do I appreciate your time today and, uh, you know, I, I thank you for Great to be with you at all, but these guys really work with their short game. They spend some time there and, 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 uh, I encourage everybody to do that. If you're, if you're not so long, you can, you can still score. You can, you can really upset your opponents by, by spending a little time in the short and get some good wedges now, get some, you know, look at the jaws rod They're They're compelling for sure. If, if there's anyone to take short game advice out there, I highly suggest the audience there to, uh, to listen to the man, Roger Cleveland here and, uh, go, go work on that short game and, and lower your score probably a little bit quicker than smashing and your enjoyment. The it, it's fun to, fun to beat your opponent, you know, especially in the short game area. Yeah. You can, you, that's where you like, you can really frustrate people. I think that's the one thing people don't realize is you no, know, you can outdrive people all day, but if you're just little knocking little chips within uh gimme range, that's, that's gonna, that's gonna wear people down pretty quick. Yep. So, Roger, thank you so much for your time and you. uh, appreciate having you. Thank you. Take care, Ren. All right. And thanks again to Roger for the time. That'll do it for this episode of Fully Equipped. As always, if you want more gear news, you can check us out on social media. We are at Fully Underscore Equipped on Twitter and at Fully Equipped Golf on Instagram. Thanks as always for listening. We'll see you next week.